I appreciate David leaving that song at my request. Uh, it's a song that we learned this past week at camp, and it just went so perfectly with my lesson tonight. Uh, and I knew that it would be something easy for us to uh, learn together. Uh, and so we'll look forward to singing that again after we talk about a few things from the book of Ruth. If you'd like to turn to the book of Ruth this evening. Right after the book of Judges in our Bibles. And look there in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Who here has heard the phrase, everything happens for a reason? Everything happens for a reason. Uh, that's true. And sometimes the reason is I did something dumb, and that's why something happened. Uh, when I was in uh, high school, I, uh, I bought a, a 1991 Chevy S10 Blazer, uh, and it was a great little truck. Actually, my parents bought it, and I paid them back over the course of a couple of years, uh, but it was a good little truck. Um, it was uh, not always the most reliable. It had some work that, that I had to do on it that, that needed to be done. It was a little bit older by uh, the time I was graduating high school. It had a small hole uh, in the muffler system, and so on really cold mornings, smoke would just kind of billow out from the bottom of it. Uh, I had some friends who jokingly called it the pollution mobile uh, because it just had this little white cloud that went with it. So when I was moving to Florida for college, my parents approached me and asked, if I would rather take my mother's almost brand new Honda Accord, uh, to which I said, absolutely, I would love to take it. So I did. My freshman year in college, I took it down to Florida with me. That was very generous of them. Uh, and I did great uh, all year long until I think it was uh, maybe the week before finals, dead week. I was out with some friends, and we were in stop-and-go traffic um, in, in Tampa, and I look over in the passenger seat. In fact, I just texted this friend of mine about this and said, hey, do you remember this? And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember. Uh, I looked in the passenger seat. My friend's name is Justin. We played a lot of basketball together. But I look, and he's looking at me with just this little tiny grin on his face, and he has his finger so far up his nose, it's up to the knuckles. I mean, he's tickling his brain with that finger. And I look at him, and I laugh, and I rear in the car in front of me. That's a true story. And so the next year, when I was a sophomore, the pollution mobile came with me to Florida. Why did that happen? Everything happens for a reason, many say, and so my question is, why did that happen? Many people use that phrase, everything happens to a reason, to say that God is the reason everything happens. And so my question is, from an admittedly silly story, silly example, is God the reason I crashed my car that day? Did God, and again, I know this is silly, but I'm trying to make a point. Did God guide Justin's hand deep into his nose? Did God restrain my head from turning and seeing the car in time before I could rear-end it? The Bible teaches that there are a number of things that cause things to happen. Our choices, good and bad, can be the cause of things. The choices of others, good and bad, can be the cause of things. The devil, the one who is against us, who is tempting us, and his working in this world over which he is the prince, that can be the cause of things. And as Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, time and chance 
happen to us all, and sometimes things just happen, and there's no really big cosmic reason or spiritual reason that those things happened. Everything doesn't happen for a reason in that sense. The Bible doesn't teach that. But I believe what the Bible does actually teach is in many ways much more powerful. The Bible does teach that, number one, that God by His providence can use anything to accomplish His purposes in our lives. Even me rear-ending that car could have been used by God to bring about something that I needed in my life. And number two, the Bible teaches that we should continually seek to put ourselves in a position to be blessed by God in what we do. That God is working, that we should be working to put ourselves in the position where God is working for us. Now this morning in our Bible class hour, we studied this idea of providence from the book of Esther. Um, as we're going through the Bible, that's just where we are in our daily Bible readings and in our Sunday morning classes. So we looked at the book of Esther and talked about providence. And, and many people, um, because these two books are both about women, named for women, uh, two people like putting those two books together. Uh, but when you look at it, there's really many things that they don't have in common. They're from different time periods. We think about how God is used and the name of God is used in those two different books. Uh, we think about the position of the two women and, and where they were in terms of their social status. There's lots and lots of differences between the two books. But one of the great commonalities between those two books is how we see God working behind the scenes using things both good and bad to bring about and accomplish his purposes. So to build on what we talked about this morning from the book of Esther, I would like to take a few moments this evening to study that same concept from a slightly different perspective from the book of Ruth. And we'll just have two points this evening from the book of Ruth. I can get our PowerPoint going here. God's providence and our working from the book of Ruth. Now, in the high school class, we're actually studying from the book of Ruth this quarter, and so those students will be very familiar with uh, this book and what's going on here. I know most of us, good Bible students, are familiar with this book, but just a very quick refresher about this book and what happened in this book. If you're there in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, read with me. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So that's the context in terms of history of when these things took place. In the days when the judges ruled. And we know, looking back one verse into Judges chapter 24 and verse 25, in the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges is perhaps... Uh, the most discouraging of all of the books that we have in our Old Testament. It is just down the toilet bowl of evil, wickedness, and rebellion against God. But here we find Ruth as a shining exception of some people who are trying to do what's right even in that time. So, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, Ruth 1 and verse 1, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, 
Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the women survived her two sons and her husband. And we remember what happens next. They realize that the famine is over back in Judah, so they return to Bethlehem. And the two daughters-in-law are going to go with Naomi until Naomi says, go back to your people, go back to um, your own gods, find another husband, all those sorts of things. And Orpah does reluctantly, but Ruth refuses. And she makes that famous statement in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And so we see that this Moabite woman has become a believer and follower of Yahweh, And she is someone who is committed to loving and supporting her mother-in-law. In In the second chapter, we find Ruth working. And she goes into the field of a man named Boaz. And this man ends up being a good man and a kinsman redeemer. And in chapter 3, Naomi hatches a plan in order to get Boaz to redeem Ruth, to marry Ruth, that their family heritage might continue. And this plan works but not without uh, an unexpected monkey wrench that there is a closer redeemer than Boaz. And so in chapter 4, Boaz goes to the elders of the city and he asks this man, will you redeem this land? Will you buy back the inheritance of Elimelech? And the guy says, sure, I'll do it. And he says, well, if you do that, you also have to marry this woman named Ruth. And he says, well, never mind. I'm not going to do that because if he does... His firstborn son will not carry his name. Instead, he will carry the name of Ruth's dead husband. And so Boaz ultimately is able to marry Ruth, uh, and we see a really cool ending of the story that we'll talk about here in just a second. Okay, so that catches us up. Two points that I want us to consider about this incredible story that we find in our Old Testaments. Number one, in regard to providence, God is working to bless us beyond our expectations, far beyond our expectations. Do you believe that? I heard an audible yes. I love that. God is working even when we don't see His working in the moment. Naomi acknowledged and confessed this, didn't she? Even negatively, she admits that God is the one who is doing the working. Look there in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 20. When they returned to this place of Bethlehem, the people of that land, especially the women, they come out and they're excited and they say, Is this Naomi? We haven't seen her in a decade. It must be her. But she said to them, verse 20, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has 
afflicted me. Even in the depth of her sorrow and her pain, like Job in many ways, Naomi still acknowledges that God is working. Now, she thinks that God is working in this negative way in her life, but she still attributes these things that are happening back to God, back to the Almighty. And then in chapter 2, we see almost the opposite. When Ruth comes home and Naomi asks, well, whose field were you working in? And she says, I was working in the field of a man named Boaz. Notice what Naomi says in chapter 2 and verse 20. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives, one of our kinsmen redeemers. Naomi, after the fact, looks back on what has happened, and she says here in chapter 2, put it in our language, my bad. (laughs) I misinterpreted that. I I didn't see that clearly. And God was there working all along. And with the benefit of hindsight, she is able to see that God is, in fact, working for her benefit. What had to happen for Ruth and Naomi to be blessed the way they were? I gave you a list of 25 things from the book of Esther this morning. Here is a list of 25 things from the book of Ruth. Uh, That is very small on the screen so that I could get all 25 on there at the same time. Let me just run through those quickly, and uh, I can send out this PowerPoint to anybody who wants it. I'll just have it blasted out so that you can have this list if you want it. But think about this. Think about the things that had to happen for ultimately Boaz and Ruth to get married and then be blessed with a child who ultimately is going to play a really big part in what happens next in the Bible story. Okay, Think about this. There had to be a famine in Judah. Elimelech had to leave Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go look somewhere else for a place for bread during that famine. He had to choose to go to Moab instead of some other neighboring country or tribe. Elimelech's sons had to marry Moabite women. Malon married Ruth specifically instead of some other Moabite woman. The men died, and they had to die without having children for these things to take place upon return. They hear in the land of Moab that the famine is over somehow, and Naomi chooses to return to Bethlehem. Ruth has to refuse to return to her people, her family, and her gods, even though Naomi Uh, directs her, commands her to do that. They have to return at the beginning of the barley harvest for everything to work in the sequence that it does when they get back. Ruth goes into the field in order to work, and she has to have that attitude and work ethic to want to work. Uh, The text actually says that she happened to come to the field of Boaz. Well, that has to happen in order for this to happen, to work out. Boaz has to be a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who apparently is in Bethlehem, has to come and check on his field on this same day. And Boaz apparently comes later in the day. And so Ruth, who got there first thing in the morning, has to continue working throughout the day. So she's still there when Boaz comes. Boaz has to notice Ruth's work. He has to hear of her kindness to Naomi. And Ruth has to stay in the field of Boaz at his invitation. When, when, uh, Naomi, when Ruth gets back at the end of the day, Naomi has to ask her where Ruth worked. Naomi has to hatch this odd plan to get Ruth to ask Boaz to redeem her. That's coming at night at midnight and uncovering his feet and asking him to redeem and all those things. 
Uh, it's admittedly a strange plan, at least from our perspective. Ruth has to buy into it and do what Naomi tells her to do, and then Naomi's crazy plan has to actually work, which it does. Boaz has to be willing to fulfill the role of redeemer. Boaz has to follow the law and then also the customs, the law of Moses and the customs of the day, and fulfilling the, the right of kinsman redeemer and the transfer of kinsman redeemer. Old so-and-so, who we don't know his name, has to give up the right of redemption. And then Boaz and Ruth have to be blessed with a child despite Boaz probably being an older man. If you remove any one of those 25 things, and we could probably make a bigger list than this, if you remove any one of those 25 things, none of this works out the way that it does. Uh, after our Esther lesson this morning, uh, one of the moms here uh, said that she uh, reads a, a number of like young adult kinds of novels with her children, and she says uh, whenever she reads those, there's always just so many things that are just too convenient, right? It's just, it's just too convenient in this story for this person to be at this place and for those things to happen. And, and she made the point, she says, that's kind of the way it is in the book of Esther. I mean, it is super convenient that Mordecai just happens to be in the right spot to overhear this assassination attempt on the king. And it's almost too convenient that, uh, that when Haman comes in and he is going to ask for uh, Mordecai to be killed by King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus has to be reading conveniently from the section of the records where Mordecai has not been honored. I mean, if we put those into a novel, we'd just say, well, that's unbelievable. That wouldn't really happen. It is too convenient because God is working. He is working behind the scenes to make these things work out the way they do. And that is the case here as well. But here is what I want us to see. What we have here is not just God specifically working in all of these ways. We have a tapestry of different causes that ultimately are worked together by God to bring about this result. Think about this. We see that there are some bad things that just happen. We know that, right? And Maybe because of God, maybe not. We don't know. But sometimes bad things happen in life. And I think that happens here. The men died without having children. Now, maybe that's because God didn't bless them with children, but that could be that that's just something bad that happens. It's a bad occurrence. And yet it still had to happen in order for these things to work out the way they did. We also see that there are bad actions taken by people. In, in fact, uh, uh, well, this is the consequences of sin. I'll, I'll do this one first instead. We see sometimes that there are things that are the consequence of sin. The people were told when they went into the promised land that if they were faithful to Him, what was going to happen? They would be blessed. Their crops would always produce in fact, they could skip a year every seven years and they would still have enough. They could skip two years every 50 years and they would still have enough. And yet we find that there is a famine in the land. According to the old law, that was a direct consequence of sin. But it was because of that famine that ultimately that they left. And, and there are some bad actions taken by people, some things that were sinful, at the very least some things that were unwise. And most of those things happened right at the beginning of the book in leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab and marrying Moabite women. And then down here at the bottom when so-and-so gives up his right to be the kinsman redeemer, ironically, so that his name won't be forgotten. And what does the book of Ruth intentionally do? Forget his name. I love that, don't you? 
Not for him, but I love that for uh, the symmetry of it all. And so there's bad things that people do. And yet those bad things are used by God to bring about good results. Now, we see just the opposite as well. Sometimes, sometimes there are good things that just happen. And, and we don't know whether this is God working specifically or not, but there were a lot of good uh, serendipitous sort of things that happen in the book. It just so happens that these things happen, and these things had to happen in order for the end result to come about. And there are people who are taking good actions in this book. We see lots of people doing what is right. And there are some consequences to those good actions that we see in the book as well. So, so six different causes, if you want to think about it in those terms, but all of them work together by God to bring about the result. I know that this is from the Old Testament, and I know that God worked in a different way with His people in the Old Testament than He does today. But in the book of Ruth, we see God working in a very similar way to what He does with us. Not through some direct revelation where He says to Boaz, hey, take Ruth as your wife but instead working behind the scenes to accomplish His purposes through the actions of good people. And I think we are given that same kind of assurance that all of these things that are happening around us in our lives, God can work those things together for our ultimate spiritual good. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is the verse that I am referring to. If you want to turn over there in your New Testament... You know, if you've been here any length of time, that this is one of my favorite verses uh, because it's a promise that God has given that in times of hardship and pain and grief and loss and uncertainty and doubt and all those sorts of things, I find great comfort in knowing that God is still working. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, there's a lot of context that we could give in the 8th chapter of Romans to these things, even in that phrase, all things. But I want us to just make two points from this verse. Number one, it is not that all things are good, or that it is good, but that it turns out for our good. God, God works together all things for good to those who love God. Sin is still sin, evil is still evil, people still make mistakes, people still do sinful things and persecute God's people. All of those things are true and all of those things are still wrong. But the creator of the universe is great enough to use something that is wrong for the good of good people. But who are those good people? Well, that's the second thing that we see. This is a promise from God, but it is not a promise for everyone. It is a promise that is made specifically and only to those who love God, to those who are the called or who answer the call, we might say, of His purpose. And if you're not right with God, if you're not seeking to do His will in love, then don't expect to have this assurance or promise because you don't have it. But if you do love God, and if you have submitted yourself to His call to become a Christian, you have this promise. This is a promise that even Boaz and Ruth didn't specifically have 
But it is a promise that they give us a great example of what we must do in order to receive it. And that's the second lesson that I want us to consider tonight. God is working to bless us beyond our expectations. And as New Testament Christians, we have that promise. So what should we be doing? Well, we should put ourselves in the position to be blessed by God. Uh, We're told, I think especially young people are told, that, that, that our circumstances dictate our entire life. That the things that happen to us, whether they're good or whether they're bad, those are the things that determine how our lives turn out. Uh, and I think Ruth, Ruth stands as a shining example of why that's not true for those who are servants of God. Ruth had joy and contentment in gra- and gratitude in everything that she went through. Today, we would say that she lived a life that was filled with trauma, and indeed, she did live that kind of life. She marries, and yet her, her husband, her brother-in-law, her father all die, leaving her without someone to provide for her. She has no children, which leaves her not just identity-less in the ancient world, it gives her very little hope for the future as well. She chooses to leave her people and her family to go to a country where, where she has never been before, where she is called over and over and over by the people in that country, Ruth the Moabitess, and she is judged harshly by them. She goes through all of these very difficult and trying things, and yet still she does what God has called her to do. And she did not allow those circumstances to derail or deter her from doing what she knew was right or to rob her of God's blessings and contentment. Her circumstances did not define her. Her faith is what defined her. And the same thing should be true of us. Our circumstances, good or bad, should not be what defines us. Our faith despite those circumstances, should be what does. Are we doing that? God wants to bless us, and He can bless us, but only if we submit ourselves to Him, only if our attitude and actions and reactions to the things that happen to us allow those blessings from God into our lives. And that's exactly what Ruth and Boaz did. Have you ever thought about how you know, we read through this story. It's the story of Ruth and Boaz. Everybody knows that. But have you ever thought about how this almost, I mean, it was really close to not being the story of Ruth and Boaz. Instead, it could have been the story of Orpah and the closest kinsman redeemer. Have you ever thought about that? That Ruth and Boaz were not first in line to have these blessings from God. With each of them, there was somebody else who was in a better position to receive the blessings that God had in mind. Orpah is mentioned first in chapter 1. They both initially refuse to go back to their people, and Orpah kisses Naomi before she returns to her people. Orpah wasn't a bad person. It seems like she was a pretty good person. And no doubt God would have blessed her far more abundantly if she had just stayed with Naomi in this trial. But ultimately, she leaves. 
Even more if we turn to Ruth chapter 4 and verse 9. Will you turn there with me, please? Ruth chapter 4 and verse 9. I think Orpah is found in a better position because when we have this legal exchange of the right of a kinsman redeemer, and Boaz is going through, this is what's being exchanged. Notice what happens. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Ruth 4, 9, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, Naomi's husband, and all that was, notice, Chilions and Malons from the hand of Naomi. Chilion is mentioned first in the formal buying of the right to redeem the land, indicating that he was likely the older brother. Which means Orpah would have been in this position to be redeemed before Ruth was. Orpah came first, but she left that position of blessing. Likewise, if we look there... um, In chapter 3 and verse 11, after Ruth comes to Boaz in the field, notice what he says to her after she asks for him to redeem her. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous, a worthy woman. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I, he says. And if you drop down to chapter 4 and verse, um, uh, let's look there in verse 4. He says to um, this man, I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said... I will redeem it. How close he was. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem the right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Ruth and Boaz put themselves in a position to be blessed by God. Though they were not initially in the best position, they kept doing what was right when other people, when other people changed their minds. When other people fell to the wayside of doing God's will, they continued to do so. And so God blessed them, not just physically. We know that God blesses everyone physically to one degree or another. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God blesses them spiritually beyond their wildest dreams. Go to chapter 4 and verse 13. And this is how the book ends. In the days when there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes, there was one family that we find here in the book of Ruth who are trying to do what's right. And this is how God blesses them and all people through their family. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And the story could just end there. But instead, we have a genealogy through the end of this book that shows us the happy ending is not just in that time and it's not just in that moment. This one, Obed, he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth and Boaz are David's great-grandparents. And through the things that they did, the attitudes that they had, the way they responded to their circumstances, both good and bad, through his working, he was able to bless them far beyond what they could have imagined. And this Moabite widow is ultimately going to be the great-grandmother of the greatest king that God's people ever had, who ultimately will be the beginning of the line that brings about the king of the world. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how God is working, but I know that if we put ourselves in this position of doing what's right, God will work, and He will bless us. Let me leave you with just two passages to drive these two points home, one passage for each, one from the New Testament and one from the book of Ruth. God is working to bless us beyond our expectations. This is the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just as God blessed Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, God can bless us beyond all that we can ask, beyond all that we can even think. So what do we need to do? Well, my final exhortation is really a blessing. The blessing that Boaz gave to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Put yourself in the position to be blessed by God, even this evening. Come under His wings to take refuge. Lay your life at His feet, and He can bless you far beyond all that you can ask or even think. And if we can help you to become a child of God by putting Christ on in baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life, even this evening, there is nothing that would make us happier and the angels in heaven will rejoice along with us. You're subject to that, that call of the good news. Come now, while together we stand and while we sing. What will you do with you?